Hi, and welcome back to the Evolving Media Podcast, a podcast where we talk to some brilliant people about the changes in the media industry from the point of view of the storytellers, creators, and producers in the industry. You can help this podcast immensely by subscribing to it, rating it on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and sharing it on your favorite social media platforms. It'll help us make more of these episodes, so if you have the time, please consider helping out. Today's podcast is the return of Mike Monello from Campfire NYC. Last time we talked about podcasts and their latest project Video Palace. This time we're going to go back in time a bit to a premiere 20 years ago of what would be a seminal part of horror films, found footage genre films, but most importantly, audience engagement and transmedia storytelling principles. The film called The Blair Witch Project. The film was released in 1999 and had a world of moviegoers not being quite sure if they were watching a documentary or a fiction film. Watching it became much more fun if you just went along with the thought that it was a documentary, of course. But the process around it, the outreach, the way the makers used the internet for something that many others would think of as marketing, but in reality was so much more. It's an interesting case study for sure. So, at Sundance this year, the festival hosted the 20th anniversary screening of the film. So I thought it would be a great time to invite Mike back on, as one of the producers of the film, to this podcast to talk about Blair Witch. How did it come about? What would it look like today if someone tried the same thing? What can we learn from it? And how can we get started finding our own feet in the same fields? Welcome. Mike, Mike, I'm so happy to have you on this uh, on this podcast again. Tell me, how was Sundance this year for you? Sundance was marvelous because uh, there was no pressure. Uh, I didn't have anything there I was trying to sell. Uh, it was just kind of the chance to go back to Sundance and uh, relive what was a, uh, for me personally, a, a, a remarkable experience 20 years ago and to uh, be in the same room again with uh, a large number of people, not everyone, but a large number of the people who were involved was pretty incredible. And I think the, the my takeaway from it was that, you know, Blair Witch has always been something that was huge to me. And I was always hyper aware of the importance of the Sundance Film Festival to our film, mm. right? As the launching ground, as kind of like the the festival that gave its stamp of approval to the movie that for the rest of the industry, you know, Sundance was always so important. But I think what I didn't really understand because I'd only been back to Sundance one other time post Blair Witch, and it was the year after Blair Witch, mm-hmm. um, that I didn't realize how important Blair Witch was to the Sundance story. You know, and I start, saw that in the trailer. I saw that in the way that the Sundance programmers spoke about the film when they introduced it. And it was interesting to hear them talk about the film in the context of the story of Sundance rather than talking about Sundance in the context uh-huh. of the story of the film. For me, because it was a perspective that I honestly hadn't given much thought to, because to me, Sundance was always huge. You know, and it didn't really occur to me how big the film was to Sundance in the sense of it being such a huge kind of pop culture phenomenon that premiered there. Yeah. So win-win situation in that in that sense. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean, the Blair Witch Project, it's 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 been 
such an important film, not only looking at from a, a horror film kind of point of view or from the you know found footage genre point of view, but but from also from the view of film that as I read someone say about it, it went viral before there even was a notion of what going viral was. Yeah, it it was um, viral is a weird term. I just think that it was it was uh, the I think Blair Witch was for many people. People started to realize one that storytelling that incorporated people that gave enough space for people to kind of play and engage was something that the internet was uniquely suited to. And I think that it's also, I think, an example of, you know, today we all talk about the importance of fan cultures and fan communities and fans and all of the mainstream pop culture from what TV shows get picked up to what movies are getting made seem to be driven by uh, a deep understanding of fan communities and fan cultures. And none of that really truly existed before the internet. Hmm. And I think Blair Witch was the first kind of sign that, hey, something's different here, because it was truly a fan-driven phenomenon, the success of this one. And it was easy in 1999 for a lot of people, particularly in Hollywood, to kind of just go, well, you know, that was just good marketing on the internet. And I think that um, given the time frame we were in at that, at that point, where people didn't really understand how important fan culture was going to be to yeah to pop culture i think it got a lot of it got written off as as marketing and so a lot of the studios the people at the studios and the people in power didn't really dive significantly deeper into it to really understand what was going on and so at the beginning it kind of in a weird way legitimized digital marketing for films but also you know when i entered the advertising industry mm-hmm. a lot of people in those early days would come to me they were they were you know they had titles like digital creative director or digital strategist and they would oh, say yes. to me you know your film legitimized my career and not saying them personally but like the idea that digital was something important that should have a strategy and that uh, a brand should look at <laughs> um, became legitimized by Blair Witch and that was a perspective I wasn't aware of uh, really or hadn't thought about but as I look back on it I go oh I, th- I think maybe the marketing aspect was a little distracting to the real importance, I think, or, or, or the real, I think, what really matters and what resonates in culture today. The film itself, it crossed over uh, its budget thousands and thousands times over, uh, and it's still going strong today. Just out of curiosity, I looked it up on Google Scholar, uh, Blair Witch, and it's got something like 6,000, close to 6,000 hits on Google Scholar, academic papers, that is. It's that's right. way, way over 200 in 2018 only, you know. Uh, my, fa- <laughs> my, my favorite one was, uh, just uh, from a quick look, was a paper called Modulation of Negative Emotions Through Anodal TDCS Over the Right Ventral Lateral Prefrontal Cortex. <laughs> Where... <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh yeah, yeah so so they invoked sadness in the objects with one film uh, anger they used schindler's list and for eliciting fear we chose an excerpt of the blair witch project <laughs> so, you're being your film is being used in many many ways not only by digital marketing executives which is <laughs> yes yeah it is it's uh, you know um a few years after the movie came out there was an academic collection that was released on paperback that I bought and it was called um 
it was called Nothing That Is. I think it was like Blair Witch and the Millennial Conspiracies because, you know, the film came out in 1999, uh, right on the edge of the, uh, the Y2K fears. Yeah. And, um, and it was fascinating to read because it was really, it was basically media scholars all kind of taking their angle. And the book didn't really have a, it was just a collection of essays. So the book was very wide ranging points of view. Mm-hmm. And, and it was fascinating to me to read these perspectives because, you know, so many of them, and I thought what was interesting is a lot of them were interesting analysis, but in, in some cases, the academics actually ascribed, uh, you know, kind of, kind of took a point of view on our motivation for doing something. And it was fascinating to me because those, in those instances, they were almost 100% wrong mm-hmm. every time. <laughs> you know, did anyone get it right? Did anyone do, do, do you remember reading something that you went like, hmm, that person actually got what we were aiming for? Yeah, th- th- there was a lot. I mean, in the in a lot of the analysis, there were a lot of people who understood what we were trying to do or got it right. And I don't and I don't think I think in analysis, there's no right or wrong. There's only how that person perceives it, which is fascinating to me. Uh, to me, the only right or wrong is when one of them said, you know, the filmmakers chose to do this in order to do this, you know, that like the, in order to do this part almost always was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of like, um, it was fascinating to me to kind of see that to go like, Oh, wait a minute. Like, yeah, that might've been in the film, but the reason you're saying it's in the film is not the reason that it came out that way, <laughs> you know? And a lot of times they would prescribe aesthetic reasons when, Oftentimes it was a budget reason or a time reason or, uh, you know, something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very practical stuff. But did, yes. did you, when you were producing this and when you were approaching Sundance and showing it at small film festivals, etc., did you have any notion that it would become the thing it then became? We, okay, so none of us, nobody had any notion that it was going to be this massive kind of pop culture hit. But, you know, Sundance was our first film festival. And... You know, we were in communication with our audience well before Sundance. You know, the website came, came online in the summer and we were still finishing the film. And I definitely there were things that happened with the fans leading up to Sundance that made me understand that we were tapping into something wildly different. You know, that that I think for me. And for a lot of other people, we had kind of speculated as like, hey, the Internet is with the Internet. It's going to be possible to do something like this. But we were actually doing it. And it wasn't it was very serendipitous that it was happening. But we also recognized that it was happening. And so by the time we got to Sundance. Right. And we had our first screening. um, I remember we were sitting out, uh, standing out in front of the Egyptian theater there and the, the alley where the standby ticket holders have to wait was packed and our screening was at midnight and the first weekend and it had sold out before the festival started. Mm -hmm. So this packed kind of standby line where all people who knew the chances of them actually getting in were very slim since this was the first weekend, it was a buzz film and there were screenings of the film scheduled in Salt Lake city, which is, you know, for the, for the local community because park city is just a ski resort. It's not really a place where, you know, most people live in Salt Lake city about 45 minutes away. And yet, uh, uh, what we saw in that alley were high school students and college students who had come up to Sundance and they never, there was never a film for those audiences that they would come up to Sundance to see. They, they weren't following the indie film industry in that way. And I remember, uh, I think it was Ed and, and I, can't remember who else was there. We were standing in front of the Egyptian and, and one of these film distributor walks around and says, 
where all these kids come from, you know? And it was one of those moments where overhearing this film distributor who was someone we were targeting to want to buy the film say that made me realize, because I had been to Sundance before Blair Witch. And I looked around and I said, yeah, you know, like I, I knew there was something happening, but when that executive said that, I kind of went, oh yeah, hold on a second. This is a whole new audience here. That was power. Like for a, for a group of producers who had never produced a film and had no power in Hollywood, having those fans and having built those fans for the film outside of any of that support, it gave us power to negotiate that, that most indie film producers at that time did not have. I mean, that's what most producers are striving to attain today as well. But then you moved on. I don't remember if I read somewhere that you said that, you know, Blair, which was kind of the spark to start what would then become Campfire NYC, where you've been for, is it, it's over a decade now, right? Yeah, about 13 years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would you say you learned from Blair, which that, that has helped you the most in all of the successful things you've been doing over at Campfire? Well, you know, Blair Witch for me was an opportunity to really understand the value, what the internet and what really... Um, storytelling to connected audiences means, which is something that I think a lot of people still struggle with all the time. And you can see even Netflix taking chances when they start to add interactivity and certain programming, or or you can see how they're a streamer, but yet they're trying. They're the, all the streamers are trying to turn their shows into major events still. Yeah. Even the value is I can pick it up and watch it whenever I want versus stuck to a linear schedule. You can see that people are still kind of discovering what the internet's good at. And, and uh, the social platforms have kind of dominated because they're participatory. And so we, we consume, you know, video content and, and things through these platforms sometimes, whether it's Instagram and, and, and our interactions have become codified through the platforms. But I think you can even start to see uh, people pushing against that now. And um, the reality is that when you're telling stories on a computer screen, there is still that sense of like, this screen should interact with me. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a phone screen, it should, I should, it should react to me in some way. And if it doesn't, it's kind of broken in a sense, right? I mean, that's not all the case, but even, you know, Hulu and, and Netflix, we have the, you know, I can, I can click the button and skip 30 seconds forward or 10 seconds back or whatever, you know, these things that are like, and people click those buttons all the time to move yeah. ahead. Or the screen becomes a multitask where it's in the corner while I'm doing something else. And so, which is different than still when we turn on the TV and it's like, that's what we're here to do when we yeah. turn on the TV. So it's, and, um, it's, it's not meaningless, but it, it has less meaning than it could have and than what people expect it to have, right? Right. And that idea of spinning kind of, you know, for Blair Witch, it was a mythology, but, but this open space and embracing people's, you know, when people came in and they started to tell their own stories in the mythology of the Blair Witch, which was well before they had seen the film, knowing to embrace that and figuring out, okay, how do we embrace that? Not to not leverage it or exploit it, but embrace it. And, and what does that mean? Those, those were things that I was happy to learn before I got into marketing, because I think had I been into marketing, I would have come at it 
You know, if I'd been trained in marketing, I think we would have come at it much more uh, nefarious is the wrong word, but I think we would have had an agenda, mm-hmm. you know, and we would have been like, it would have been like, how do we exploit this to our benefit as yeah. opposed to, you know, when we were doing it, it was like, oh man, it's like we're live on stage and now we got to keep entertaining people. You know, we, we approach it as storytellers. And I think looking back on it and being able to go, oh, yeah, we were just spinning a story and telling a story. We were entertaining ourselves as we, as much as we were entertaining the audience. But there are things that happened there that I can recognize were very, very different. And it was largely a dialogue in, through the storytelling that was going on between us as creators and, and storytellers and audience who were participating and 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 shaping and forming their own stories in that experience that gave it its power. And I think we were very fortunate to see that and Campfire kind of came on the scene as that. And I mean, most ad agencies now, well, now they don't even use the word storytelling because an ad agency world, if you can believe it, storytelling is a buzzword, um, which <laughs> says says more about the ad industry than yeah. anything else, frankly. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But when Campfire came on, we kind of we kind of said, this is our niche. Like we're storytellers and we know, we understand how to tell stories to these kinds of connected audiences, participatory. And, um, and we, the fact is, is that point of view is still unique in, at least in the ad industry, you know, and entertainment, it's not, but we see it, we see it done in different ways. You know, we can see how Marvel is doing it. We can see how Lucasfilm is doing it. We can see how still an enormous number of independent creators are doing it. And, the variety of it is what's exciting because in some ways it's still not codified. Do you think that's something like Blair which could work today? And and in that case, what would it look like? I'm thinking that there's so many people who are adept at uncovering hoaxes, etc. And everyone is expecting something to be fishy about something else. But can, can right. could something like Blair which work today? I think the answer is yes. And I think, and here's why. It wouldn't work the same way. But I think that, you know, it's important to realize, too, that the hoax aspect of it, people thinking it was real didn't really happen until the film started to go into the mainstream. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. In other words, like between the website going up and the Sundance premiere and probably right up until maybe two or three months before, you know, once the trailer came out. And the trailer started to blur that line. And, and and a lot of people's first experience with Blair Witch was either the trailer or like Curse of the Blair Witch, you know, the sci-fi special. Yeah. The people who came in that way kind and then went online saw a lot of people playing in the Blair Witch world as if it was real. And that uh, set the stage for a lot of people wondering, is it real or is it not real? Mm, yeah. But it's important to understand that it would it would be that would be like today, somebody stumbling onto a creepypasta, Slenderman and going, oh, my God, this is totally real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's that it's like the people who are who are writing it and the people who are engaged understood it wasn't real. But but. I think because of the framing of the story and because, quite frankly, on the Internet at that time, it was like, you know, you went from website to website and you visited message boards. And so because everybody had their own message boards or communities had their own message boards, right? The Blair Witch message board was the place you went to play in the Blair Witch universe. 
But when I think mass audiences started to come in, uh, we didn't really have a mechanism for people to realize that it was fake. And then that coupled with the fact that one of the things that people love to do when they brought friends into the world was to tell them it was real. Because when you went into the space, because it was a bunch of people essentially role playing, when you went into the space, it was really terrifying if you if you played like it was real. And uh, <laughs> and so I think you had this kind of combination of, of that. And then the trailer comes out and then Curse of the Blair Witch comes out. And if you're not really paying attention to like the end credits where it says it's all a work of fiction or something like that, then I can see how easy it was for the story to kind of flip at some point. And, willful and in the mainstream of willful suspension of disbelief. Yes, turns into uh, uh, people actually believing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> is but but the reality is that people want to believe, right? And like ghost stories and supernatural stories, and these these people want to believe in them. And I think the only reason we're not seeing that same kind of play, or if we see that kind of play, it happens in the context of games, or it happens in the context of larks, you know, is because quite frankly you're still not going to make a lot of money doing anything like Blair Witch unless it's tied to feature film or a TV series or some piece of media where there is a model for making money. You know, people are still not going to pay for a Blair Witch digital experience. Even if it was modernized for today, they expect it for free. And, and because of that, the mainstream film companies are still, you know, the work that, that we did with Blair is still going to be seen as a function of the marketing department. Mm-hmm. And once it becomes a function of the marketing department, it becomes, it happens afterwards, not during like it did with Blair. And uh, it's a limited time period where that marketing is valued or desired. And so, you know, it's, it's, if you look at the work that campfires done, things like resistance radio, I think are, are things that play with, reality and present a fictional world but do so in a way that's that feels uh, resonant today and still like resistance radio is another example of people at first believing something was actually not what it was it was fiction and people and a lot of people mistook it for real because they don't dive in deep um so it, it can still happen but whether it goes whether it goes huge anymore like that without a without an anchor like a feature film or something that a lot of people are going to spend money on it's hard to say yeah it's also you know if those things that do go viral without the anchor that you were talking about those tend to be very very off the cuff kind of things and very very much not much without any any follow up or anything like that they become just these memes or phenomenons that just pass by uh the, the right. consciousness You know, there are projects like the last project I talked about when we spoke, uh, Video House, the podcast, right? Like that, that is a project with a deep mythology that is not as barely touched in the first season of the podcast. And, you know, I think we're in a different place than we were when we were making Blair Witch. You know, when we were making Blair Witch, we were making no money. We were living in garbage apartments and, and we were eating ramen noodles all the time and we didn't have kids and we didn't have that as many responsibilities. Now, you know, we have responsibilities in a perfect world. I think video pals is something where we might have raised the money to do the podcast and probably put some of that mythology a little bit, a, a little bit more of it online to tide it over. As it stands, though, it, it's been designed with a mythology for people to kind of play with and speculate on. And we see some of that. 
but it's really like the potential is there. It's been fought through that way. We just haven't done it. And I think a large part of it is that the companies that are making media, they still function in silos and mentally in the sense of like, oh, we're going to commission a podcast. Oh, we're going to commission a TV show. Oh, we're going to do these things. And that's the thing. And everything else is marketing or ancillary. There's a few companies that are starting to, but we're still not in the place where people look at it and go, oh, instead of commissioning a pilot, let's do a podcast and let's put something online and let's see how the audience takes to this. Mm. You know, it's like they'll do one thing, but not they're still not crossing media over until the property gets huge. And then when you get like Marvel, then all of a sudden you see people starting to cross all the media because in their minds, it's still that old model of like, now we're exploiting IP. Yeah. But that's, uh, which is a shame because the audience, they're crossing media every minute of every day without hesitation. So why not? Absolutely. Yeah. Why not follow them or because the people like to play and people like to engage with stuff together with other people and, and be, be engaged to something and be, be loyal to something and be, you know, know more about stuff. It's, it's, most people love that. Yes. Well, you know, what's interesting is that it's a, that's a real challenge, I think, for entertainment industry, because the people who probably understand how to how to do that are not necessarily the people that are um, the studios and the and the commissioners feel comfortable handing lots of money over. Yeah. to do. Right. Like we have we have showrunners. These are people who are exceptional talents at telling linear stories in the TV format. It, it's, it's a unique skill and it's absolutely necessary. And, and, and it doesn't make sense to turn over a, a TV series to someone who's never done it, right? But if a showrunner came in and said, hey, I want to do this interactive thing or a filmmaker like Steven Soderbergh, hey, I want to do this crazy interactive thing, you'll get uh, HBO to fund it. But then he goes and he does it and like Steven Soderbergh and He's not really partnering with game developers. He's not partnering with people who have done it before. He doesn't have, he's not seeking out the learnings from interactive media. He's kind of like, hey, I'm a linear storyteller. Now I'm going to play in this space. And what he, what he produces is something that most game developers and game designers and people who have been working in interactive media look at and go, oh, he made all the mistakes we all made 10 years ago, you know, and, yeah. and it take off. And then, of course, HBO goes, well, that didn't work. People don't really want that. Yeah. And and they don't look at it and go, oh, no, 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 no. That was actually not good. You know, yeah. I love Steven Soderbergh. I think he's a genius. But that interactive thing was not good. And it fell it was it fell prey to errors that honestly, any low level employee in a game or interactive industry could have warned him away from yeah. had he just out the expertise. So there's still not an understanding of the expertise that's required. Sounds, I mean, sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One final question. Since this is podcast for people, you know, in producing, creating um, storytellers, etc., in all types of media, but for someone who's just starting out, or perhaps someone who's a seasoned pro in more traditional parts of media industry, but they're increasingly looking at you know growing closer to the audience, engaging them, engaging with them. Where should you start? Do you look at Blair Witch and make their own version, or do do you do something else? <laughs> You've got to do something that's true to you. I, I you don't copy. You know, that's the thing is you don't cop. You want to take the principles of it. You want to take the idea that that there's a certain group of people who are interested in participation. And you have to recognize that it's not 100 percent of the people. Right. So over time at Campfire, we've kind of developed this point of view of audience participation. 
And uh, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this. We call them skimmers, dippers, and divers. And you go like, you know, your divers are those people who like, they're the ones who want to participate and join in. And your skimmers are people who are like, you know, you're, you're going to reach them through traditional media. They're the people who found out about Blair Witch through the trailers or through the posters or through the buzz that was generated once it started to break into mainstream press or through Curse of the Blair Witch. And then your dippers are this middle layer, people who like to be a part of something for the social rewards, which is basically, hey, you know, I like Blair Witch, you like Blair Witch, we can hang together in this fan community, right? And so so these are different motivations mm-hmm. for enjoying something. Your divers love to get into the story and uncover things and do those. Your uh your dippers are really into hanging out with people and talking about and speculating. And, and it's a little bit more story, but it's social rewards that they're after. And then your skimmers are people that you've got to reach if you're making something that you intend to be mainstream and successful. But, you know, really what you're doing is you're when you're online, you're really playing more towards your divers and your and your dippers. And you're trying to create that what we might call social proof, which is people who are saying, Hey, this is great. Um, which helps when your skimmers start to hear about it to to get them to join or participate or look in on it. And so if you take a, a, a principle like that, you go like, Oh, that's really kind of how Blair, Witch kind of worked. You can back off and now go, now what do I want to do? And it could be any community and any kind of story, but you've got to use the tools that you have available today. And it's not about fooling people. It's not about it has to be horror. It's just about, you know, now how well are you going to execute those principles against uh, in line with your story? And it's always about the experience. It's always, you know, what do people want? I mean, I think it's easier with horror and genre because I think horror is a genre where people especially quite frankly, as the world is taking a turn towards conservative governments, horror is a genre where people, they exercise their demons through horror, they, you know, through being scared and their fears. And so right now, horror is a good time. When the world starts to turn back towards more a liberal way, um, we'll see horror take kind of a nosedive, you know? And so being aware of culture, being aware of, of how people engage, those those are the principles you want to take away, not the let me make a mythology about a witch or anything like that. For indie creators, there's also the possibility, when you're looking at mainstream, there's always a bit of a hesitation when it comes to actually giving some power to the audience, because you never know what the audience is going to do with that power or with that agency that they would have over the content or over how something unfolds. But I mean, if you can find those areas where you can give agency to the audience, be it to see Blair Witch on an actual theater near them or something else, you know, then then right. then, then that empowers that empowering thing and uh, empowering thing for the audience is is something that would in my world at least make them m- lots more interested than if they are only right. allowed into this small sandbox part kind of thing where where nothing they do really matters absolutely but it's you know that it's still a different mode of creation and uh we're getting there we're getting there. I mean, in, in many ways, in many ways, I thought we'd be there by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in other ways, I still go, oh, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Mike, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode and have a great rest of the February. Thank you, Simon. You too. Thanks for having me on. 